Welcome to Engaging Experts, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with influential attorneys. Our guests will describe their practice and expertise. Then we will go deep on various topics related to effectively using expert witnesses. Hi, this is Russ Rosenzweig. I am the CEO and co-founder of Roundtable Group and also the host of this podcast series. We have a great guest for you today, Andy Lustigman, a partner at Alshan in New York and our resident expert on all things related to false advertising claims. Welcome, Andy. Good to be here, Russ. Thanks for having me. Now, before we dive in, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Roundtable Group, the experts on experts. We've been connecting attorneys with experts for over 25 years. Find out more at roundtablegroup.com. Andy, thanks for joining us today. I want to first express my gratitude to you. I'm not sure if you know this, but you were actually one of our very early clients at Roundtable Group, going all the way back to the early 2000s. So thanks for sticking with us for all these years. Um, our, our pleasure. It's, it's been a, a successful relationship over the years. So uh, you guys provide excellent service and excellent selection of witnesses, very well qualified witnesses. So it's an easy, an easy choice. Thanks for saying that. And our topic of the day is advertising law. And uh, I want to just start by, you know, many of our listeners are fellow business owners like me, uh, who <laughs> periodically need to engage counsel for many kinds of matters, including advertising related matters. So I want to just discuss a little bit about your background. You know, after you graduated from the University of Michigan, which is the second best Big Ten school right after my Northwestern Wildcats, I'm really curious, why did you decide to go to law school? And when did the focus on advertising law as a specialization start? Uh, so I originally wanted to go to law school because I had a strong interest in politics and very much wanted to uh, uh, work in the political arena. I was a political science major at Michigan, and I went to law school in Washington, D.C. I went to the American University Washington College of Law. Um, and as my law career or as schooling uh, uh, evolved. Um, I sort of, uh, I don't know, had a change of focus to more of a traditional law practice. I got sort of this in, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, some of the color of politics had, had worn away uh, and the interest in it, although I remained very politically active and interested. But um, being directly involved uh, became less of an interest. Um, and I I took a position as an associate at a law firm in DC. Uh, the when you're when you're going through law school, where you work your second summer is a is a key thing, a key place. And the firm I worked for, um, I found out later on that Barack Obama and I were summer associates at the same firm. He was in the Chicago firm, Chicago office, and I was in the DC office. He became president, and I defend and prosecute false advertising claims. So uh, you can see how those things turn out. Um, uh, in terms of going into advertising law, um, 
my father uh, had a boutique firm focusing on advertising and marketing law. And uh, so I always had an interest in it as a child and growing up, uh, although my intention was not to join him. And uh, a woman I was on law review with uh, uh, actually joined his practice when she graduated. She wanted to transition to Reader's Digest, going in-house at Reader's Digest. And uh, the DC firm that I was working with was having some issues. Uh, so I decided to uh, uh, join my father in New York and uh, uh, join his boutique firm. And I've uh, been practicing in the area of advertising law since 1995 and continue to practice with my father to this day, although we've merged the boutique firm into a, uh, uh, a full-service business law firm, Olsham. Ah, oh, amazing story. And thanks for sharing that background. And let's dive into some topics related to false advertising um, because many of my fellow business owners and I uh, periodically see, you know, ads from competitors that seem to be false. And I want to start maybe going back to the 80s, which I think I kind of recall being the golden age of advertising. You know, I can still fondly recall those famous commercials about garbage bags that leak and batteries that die while your daughter is playing with her favorite toy. And, you know, I recall all manner of really boastful commercials like Crazy Eddie claiming to have the lowest price in the universe. Um, so I'm really curious, were there a lot of false advertising lawsuits back then? And how has advertising disputes, how have they evolved since the 80s? So maybe I could even take it back a couple of years, really, for the to the to the '70s, um, and it relates to a lot of the things we've been talking about. So the short the short answer is that there were significant um, you know problems in advertising. A famous case would be like they would uh, for for soup. I don't remember if it's Campbell's soup or not, but to make the soup look like it had much more uh, 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 meat and vegetables, they put rocks underneath. The, the beginning of the bowl uh, was an example, or someone would have two different wipers, uh, you know, would, would, would put something on the, on, the, on the glass to make one look more blurry. So there were lots of different uh, 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 mechanisms that were being used to uh, manipulate uh, product advertising, particularly um, in the comparative sense. Um, you know, I think in some respects, there would be instances where there was a, uh, a concern about using a competitor's product name. So you may recall seeing those ads with the comparing your product to brand X. Yes. Or they'll say, well, we tried the leading brand and not show it as right. uh, brand X. Or the uh, other there, guy. You see that. Yeah. Um, but there, there was a, a significant uh, problem with national advertising that was going on and uh in part so so the typical remedy for a competing business is to file a lawsuit under what's known as the lanham act uh, which is typically thought of in the trademark context for infringing a trademark but there's a provision that allows a competitor to sue for false 
uh, representations. But overall, what was happening is that the government was very much going to step in and uh, heavily regulate some of these advertisements that were going on and some of these uh, manipulations and the like. And what happened was industry bandied together and said, if we don't act in terms of self-policing, we're going to find ourselves facing onerous, onerous federal um, regulation. And with that, they founded what's known as the National Advertising Division, or NAD, um, as a self-regulatory body to oversee national advertising and for competitors to have um, matters resolved outside of government interference. So that's sort of the origins of NAD was because um, people were really taking too many liberties with respect to advertising. Well, that's a really interesting evolution. And I want to talk more about NAD because, you know, I'm a member, Andy, of all these various organizations of fellow fast-growing company business owners like the Young Presidents Organization and Entrepreneurs Organization, Collective 54, Provisors, and you know, fast forward to the present day, we all sort of regularly talk about our concerns about competitors' advertising claims. You know, it's real um, in these days. And, you know, but business owners, we really don't quite know what to do. We don't have a blueprint or a plan of action. Often we'll, you know, call our lawyer and ask them to write a cease and desist letter. Um, sometimes we'll just be so upset that we'll go full bore with a Lanham Act lawsuit. Um, I don't think any of my peers are aware that there is the National Advertising Division. So can you say a little bit more about what are the options for executives to pursue if we feel like one of our competitors is advertising falsely? Sure. I think there's there's a number of options. They all have pluses and minuses. And, you know, ultimately the course of action may include multiple steps uh, or, or more, more than one, but it's important to have a candid uh, conversation with your client to determine what his or her goal is really with respect to the advertising. So the simplest, the simplest thing that you can do is to have a well-constructed uh, cease and desist letter, which puts the advertiser on notice as to the offending conduct and requests voluntary compliance uh, or else, and the or else is the is the biggie. You know, are you prepared to back up your threat, or um, you know, as they say, are you going to be all hat and no cattle? So you know, are you going to say I'm going to do horrible things to you if you don't comply, and then you don't do them, or do you have a mechanism to to back it up? So a cease and desist letter could be backed up with a a lawsuit typically in federal court under the Lanham Act, as I mentioned before. Um, there are benefits to bringing a Lanham Act case, and there are, you know, there's there's significant downsides to Lanham Act cases. I would say when we were talking about the 80s before, um, in the 80s and 90s, I think Lanham Act cases were very much 
the route that people went um, in trying to stop advertising. And there's uh, you know significant case law from that time period um, and and remains to this day a, as an option. Um, the key the key thing in a Lanham Act context is uh, the ability to get damages potentially for uh, an offending conduct. So if that's of critical importance to your client uh, with respect to somebody's advertising, but you have to look at what the claim is. Is the person denigrating your your product or is the person making a false statement about your product? Then maybe that's the route to go, maybe. Uh, Or is the person making a claim that's simply unsubstantiated, that they're saying that the performance of their product is backed you know, impl- implicitly is backed by sound scientific proof when that's not the case. Now, the Lanham Act does not afford a remedy for unsubstantiated advertising. It has to be a, a false representation. So you have to be able to plead that um, what the advertiser d- is doing is a false representation. Um, so that's that's the a, a key component. Um, so Lanham Act is really, it's only available if a competitor is citing you and your company in their ads. Is that fair? No, no. It can be about their own product, but it has to be one that is going to be damaging you as the competitor. So sometimes, you know, that's that's the question. How do you say that this damages me as a competitor? So if you're in the same marketplace, you know, if you're both selling toothpaste, and this person says they're they gets their teeth extra white and you don't think it does, you know, that can be a basis because you're selling your own version of toothpaste. You know, but that's that's the question. The question is, can you show that you are gonna be damaged by that act, even if they don't mention you? Mm-hmm. But the and- typical the typical space is gonna be a situation where they're you know, you're saying one product is better than the other. Got it. And if you feel strongly, yes, we've been damaged by the competitor's ad, um, is that a kind of a strong argument to pursue a Lanham Act litigation versus an NAD action? Typically not, and a, and a, and a couple of reasons why. Uh, first of all, Usually when you uh, drill down to what the client wants, the client wants the ad to stop, the false advertisement to stop. So the question is, how quickly can we get there? The second thing is, how important are these damages? And, and you know, are you going to spend very significant amount of money with the hope of trying to collect additional funds, you know, how much have you been damaged versus the cost and the distraction of getting there? Um, those are sort of the, the really heart to heart conversations that you have to have with a client in evaluating it. But there's other downsides to having a Lanham Act case, to bringing a Lanham Act case. One of which is um, being at risk for counterclaims. Many times, um, you know, he, he who lives in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. and uh, the challenger's advertising may not be as as pure as driven snow as he or she thinks. And, uh, uh, you know, are you going to be subject to potential counterclaims and having them to defend your own turf? So that's 
that's uh, one. And the other area that I think is of increasing concern is discovery, meaning production of emails, depositions, things like that. With electronic discovery, uh, that ends up being in a very, very significant cost of any litigation. It can be a crushing cost um, in litigation, given the utilization of emails and all other types of electronic communications. So um, those are factors that you're going to need to think about. And also the time. Uh, how long is it going to take the courts to come to a resolution? I mean, as we're recording this, we're still in the COVID uh, pandemic. Courts are not operating at a at a full capacity. There are no really jury trials going on right now, and courts are there's, courts are very reluctant to proceed in civil litigation right now. Um, even outside of that, so civil litigation generally takes a a backseat to um, to criminal litigation. And so civil litigation tends to move a lot slower in the United States. So those are factors that you need to keep in mind. You know, ultimately, when I'm discussing a potential matter with a client, my question to them is, what's your goal? My true question at the end of the day is, what's your goal? When, you, it, when you get aside the, you know, the getting irate about what the person is doing. Yeah. And it sounds like a traditional Lanham Act civil litigation could be fraught with unanticipated risks and costs and delays. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit more about the National Advertising Division option. Um, and how would a fellow business owner like me pursue that venue? What is that experience like? Are there any risks and downsides? Um, and what are some of the typical resolutions that come out of it? Sure. So the so the NAD is a is a very unique body. Um, as I mentioned before, it is uh, self-regulatory. So it's a voluntary process. Um, it's overseen by the Council of Better Business Bureaus. And a typical client reaction when I mention it is, well, you know, what's what's the big deal? It's voluntary. I have I have real concerns here. I have real problems. Um, I don't want to just file a complaint with the Better Business Bureau. I want this advertising to stop. And what the when they founded NAD, um, what they did was very very clever. They made a they worked out a relationship with the leading regulators, particularly the Federal Trade Commission, which is the the national regulator, if you will, of of the federal regulator of, of advertising, and. Uh, they, they set up a referral process, and the referral process is, is that if someone does not participate in an NAD process or fails to follow NAD's recommendations um, after going through an appellate process, if they choose to, uh, the matter is referred to the Federal Trade Commission or could be referred to the Food and Drug Administration. And the arrangement that they have is that the matter goes to the top of the pile, if you will. It is assigned to an enforcement attorney. Now, that doesn't mean that a case is going to be brought by the Federal Trade Commission, but it's going to get looked at very, very closely and very uh, seriously. And as a result, 
Um, I think the most recent statistic is there's something like a 97% compliance rate with NAD decisions. Wow. Um, but people, which is, which is pretty amazing if you think yeah. about that. Um, there have been very uh, interesting instances where people have gone through the NAD process and have declined to accept the recommendations. Um, and the, probably the most famous case is Palm Wonderful, which began with NAD recommendations, ended up with a major Federal Trade Commission case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and overall did not go great for Palm. Um, there have been other cases. Um, Airborne, for example, was a high profile one. Airborne was a dietary supplement that helped with your immune system support. Um, went through the NAD process, NAD recommended changes. They declined to do it. Ended up with a very significant FTC case. Ended up paying tens of millions of dollars. Um, in, in restitution and the like, and uh, uh, you know, had to really change its advertising dramatically, not that dissimilarly to what uh, NAD had recommended. So they could have avoided a lot of problems. Um, now, importantly, NAD does not award damages. So it's really a question of changing the advertising, right? That's, that's a key thing is, so if your goal is, to get the person off the air or off the internet or whatnot, that's ultimately your goal. And that's what, you know, this is a, a great process given the hammer of the referral to um, uh, the enforcement authorities. There's other benefits to NAD. Um, there's no, there's no counterclaims. So when you, uh, uh, if you're the challenger and the, and the advertiser pokes back at you, but, but you know, Challenger is doing the following things. Um, NAD really doesn't listen. They'll say, file your own challenge on that point. So there's no risk of counterclaims. There's no discovery. So there's no production of documents. There's no production of email searches and things like that. Um, there's no depositions. So the distractions of those um, other areas of litigation are really not there. And then there's sort of the intangible. You know, when you file a matter with a federal judge, the judge is evaluating a wide spectrum of cases on a daily basis. He or she could be hearing criminal cases, could be hearing, you know, all types of civil cases, you, you name it, right? Everything across the board. The, uh, uh, the hearing officers, if you will, at NAD are advertising attorneys. And so they are um, experts at understanding the, the law and the applicable standards. Where they are not experts, and you know lawyers aren't an expert in that area, is on the, the scientific aspects of it, the substantiation. And you know that's, that's what really needs to get filled in with, with, with experts. But um, you know, the, the, those are sort of the factors that uh, we would discuss with a client in terms of proceeding. Now, NAD has evolved from having one track in which uh, a matter would go through the process and typically get resolved. Uh, the time frames have varied, but say about six months. 
um, I think they would say four to six months. They recently initiated a fast track process in which if you have a single issue, um, it's a very streamlined approach. They claim to have a decision within 20 days, 20 business days. And they've also added a, a complex track, which can take uh, significantly longer um, than the, even the, the six months because the, the matter is, is quite complex. So, um, you know, the, the time frame on it is going to very much depend on the, the track you take, but typically about six months. And I will say, you know, most federal litigations, you're not going to be from start to finish in six months. No way. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty rare in terms of at least getting a decision. Now you may resolve the matter, but at least to getting a decision. Well, it sounds like there are some enormous benefits to using the NAD. Um, and, uh, I want to just ask a question, you know, in this day and age, unlike in the seventies and eighties, especially when we're talking about B2B companies and professional services firms like Roundtable Group and Olshan. You know, we don't do commercials anymore. Uh, we do online ads. We do LinkedIn ads. We do Facebook ads. We do Google ads, AdWords. Just out of sheer curiosity, are you seeing um, litigations and NAD actions in that context? Or is it more typically in the traditional commercial and print advertising context? Uh, no, it's it's... It certainly has evolved to e-commerce. A uh, significant amount of, of uh, disputes right now are on social media posts, and uh, you know an area that a lot of uh, uh, brands have been using is influencers, because uh, as you say, you know traditional advertising, people don't don't watch TV in the traditional sense like we. Like we did in the eighties when we had you know eight channels or whatever right. um people watch on their their phones and the like and at their own time and and stream so you know advertisers certainly have brands have certainly uh transitioned very much to social media, but similarly you know n a d will look at uh, uh digital advertising digital advertising campaigns blogs um and 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 the like youtube videos. All of those things are uh, uh, fair game and have had uh, a significant amount of rulings with respect to them. I mean, I can say with social media, NAD has really sort of been at the forefront of the disclosure requirements for uh, influencers, uh, way ahead of, of even the Federal Trade Commission in, in terms of it, at least at the, in the early set. Um, so uh, very much... Uh, continues to evolve as advertising continues to evolve. Very good to know that NAD is highly relevant even in the modern digital era. And I guess last question I have, you mentioned experts, Andy, and the title of this podcast series is Engaging Experts. So I'm really curious about having been at this game for as long as you have, how often are experts and expert witnesses uh, engaged in the context of advertising disputes, generally speaking, you know, Lanham Act in particular. And I'm curious if experts are used in the NAD context. Yeah, your expert is is a critical component. And when I'm discussing a matter with a client, the pretty much the first couple of questions 
in the first couple of questions that I'm going to ask is, who's going to be our expert? Who do we have um, who can talk about these things? Um, it, it may be a survey expert if we're looking at uh, the impression that something has on a, on a consumer, but you're also going to need an expert to explain, particularly when it's a substantiation question, someone's going to need to be able to uh, uh, either have undertaken tests or studies or to be able to explain the scientific literature. In a, in a Lanham Act case, you know, an expert witness is going to be extremely important um, for the jury to hear. And working with your expert early on in shaping your case and in shaping your theories, whether you're on the plaintiff side or the defendant side, is going to be of great importance. Um, in the NAD context, I think it's even more important because, you know, the, the hearing officers who are advertising attorneys, they, they are very smart and they understand the law. What they, what they really need to know is who's right on the science and why. And it's of paramount importance that your expert, number one, uh, uh, be involved in the process, but when you have your hearing, that you allow your expert to explain the science and to answer their questions. In other words, if the hearing officer will ask, as they always do, you know, uh, 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 questions about, you know, what the expert's points are or what the other side's expert's points are, it's very important not that the lawyer answer those, but that you allow your expert to answer those. And the expert has to do so candidly, right? If your expert um, uh, is not going to be candid and may have to make concessions, you know, that's, that's, that's okay. Uh, but you want to make sure that your expert retains his or her credibility. But um, it's very rare that you're going to go into an NAD case without your experts and, uh, and be successful. You, you really need to have uh, your experts lined up, prepared, and, and ready to talk. And, and many times there's multiple experts in a case um, to uh, be able to cover various subject matter. Um, that they are proficient in. Um, but they, well, the NAD are... very much wants to hear from the experts, frankly, more than the, more than the lawyers, <laughs> if that <laughs> makes sense. Well, these are certainly the wisest and truest words that I've heard all day. And uh, being the self-proclaimed experts on experts here at Roundtable Group, um, it's obviously music to our ears that experts are called upon early and often in these kinds of matters. And of course, we've had the privilege of working with you, Andy, uh, and many dozens of your peers over all these years on placing such experts. So, so thank you for that. And any final words or advice or wisdom learnings that you've had over the years um, regarding advertising disputes that you might want to share with our listeners, both executives and fellow lawyers that are listening to the podcast? Yeah, I, I would say if you if you see something that your competitor is doing, it very much makes sense to reach out and call um, an advertising law specialist and to discuss discuss your options and to discuss what makes sense. Um, too often, you know, someone will say, "Well, I'm going to go file a, a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission," 
and just just proceed with that and and that can be fine but they should understand their options they should understand that every option has pluses and minuses and you know there is not one size fits all uh and and but there is a way to get there it's just a question of 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 you know making sure everyone's on the same page with their goals so i wouldn't don't go off uh without having a, a firm at least idea of what you have in mind and uh, and a plan to get there you know developing substantiation takes time and so it's it's important to uh, uh get involved early and that and to map out and don't and don't say to yourself well this person's doing it and it's going to cost millions of dollars to to get them to stop that that's not necessarily the case um there are options and uh, there are under the under the circumstances reasonable options that uh can help address the situation andy would you be graciously willing to serve as a sort of guide or coach or counselor to those of our listeners that are contemplating taking action because of false advertising claims and if so how would they reach you sure it'd be my my, my great pleasure to do so uh feel free to reach out send me an email um at a lustigman at olshanlaw.com um or you can call me at 212-451-2258 and be happy to discuss uh your concerns with you thank you so much andy and lustigman that's l-u-s-t-i-g M-A-N. Andy, thank you so, so much for being on our show today. It's been an honor. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks again. Good to hear from you, Russ. Thanks. Take care, everybody. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to Engaging Experts. Be sure to click subscribe so you don't miss our future episodes.